welcome to Church of the Well podcast. Thank you for joining us. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you once again for the opportunity to be here, Lord. Would you speak to us very clearly, use your Holy Spirit that, that uh, resides in each one of us, Lord, to um, understand exactly what it is that you're trying to tell us, and may we apply it to our lives this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Good morning. I hope you had a good week um, in spite of all the stuff going on. Obviously, it's been a little bit difficult. We'll get into that here in a bit. If you're new, welcome. My name's Kevin. I'm the lead pastor of Church at the Well. I'm excited that you're here. We've been preaching through the book of Hebrews, and we're basically just going to start right in. Um, so if you haven't turned to Hebrews chapter 3, go ahead and do that. And starting at verse 7, it begins with this. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says... And you're like, man, this is going to be a long sermon if we're stopping there. <laughs> Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, the book of Hebrews, one of the things that I haven't talked a lot about, because there's so much here and you know, I get so much time every week, um, it holds Scripture to an extremely high authority. Like Everything that we've talked about from this point forward is grounded in what the author of Hebrews is pulling from the Old Testament, and it's clear that he's seeing the Old Testament as accurate, historical, factual, and true. And so, when we look at this specific comment that the Holy Spirit says, the first thing we have to dive into and be reminded of is the theology behind the scriptures and what they mean to us. I've given statistics recently about how much time people who claim to be Christ followers are spending in God's Word, and it's pretty sad, to be honest. It's, it's when, you, when you process through, like, okay, this is God's love letter to us. This is God revealing Himself to us in Word. This is God showing that He never changes. This is God explaining who He is to us to a level that we can understand, because obviously we're never going to understand an infinite being forever in everything. It's interesting that even as Christ followers, we spend so little time in it. And so one of my hopes today is that maybe we'll understand a little bit more about why the Word is so important and where it came from. And this, this, the author is literally saying that the Holy Spirit wrote the Word of God. So doctrinally, we say that Scriptures were written as dual authorship. Like there was a human author with the Holy Spirit speaking to the human author as he wrote it down. Um, this is a plug for doctrine class, which will come soon, right? Because we go into this in depth. But the Holy Spirit doesn't just speak to the author who's writing it. As a Christ follower, you're told that the Holy Spirit, at your moment of conversion, your moment of rebirth, when you've professed Jesus as Lord and Christ and Savior, that the Holy Spirit enters you and resides in you. You become the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's literal. So what's so cool and what makes me geek out about Scripture so much is that the author, the co-author, the Holy Spirit of the Scriptures actually lives inside those who believe, 
which allows us to understand what the scriptures are saying. And that is like got to be one of the coolest things I've ever heard. Like, I don't know who your favorite author is or what your favorite books are, but oftentimes you listen to like book on tape. Sometimes it's really fun to listen to the author read the book on tape because you're getting their perspective, right? Like you're not getting this version of the book where, oh, this was supposed to be important. So my voice is going to sound like this is supposed to be important. And this wasn't, and people are making their own. Like when you actually have the author reading it to you, you're reading it as they intended it to be. You're hearing it as they intended it to be read, which is really cool. When you think about scripture and you think about the Holy Spirit is the one that actually wrote this. And then you think the Holy Spirit lives in me. It's the Holy Spirit that allows the scriptures to be illuminated to us. If you have been saved recently, and maybe this is kind of new, or maybe you've attempted to explain a passage of scripture to somebody who doesn't know Jesus, and it feels like you're just pulling teeth, and you're like, why can't you get this? Why didn't I, or why, I read this passage, I didn't see this last time. Like, what's going on here? It's because the Holy Spirit, in his wisdom, reveals certain things at certain times that we can handle, that we're ready for. Point us to things in our life, maybe experiences that we're going through where a certain verse hit one way, and then the Holy Spirit reveals, actually, this is what it means. And the whole purpose of it all is to draw us closer to our Creator. The Holy Spirit, obviously a, a, a component of the Trinity, right? A person in the Trinity. The Holy Spirit's job is to glorify Jesus. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. Um, there's a lot of confusion around what the Holy Spirit does, and there's a lot of denominations built around this type of a thing, and I'm not going to get into all of that, but what I will say is this. A lot of questions that we get is, well, how do we know if something's an act of the Holy Spirit? Well, you know that something's an act of the Holy Spirit if Jesus is being glorified. So if you're questioning something or you're somewhere and you're listening to someone preach or, you're, or they're declaring that it's truth and you're like, wow, is that truth? Is that not? That seems a little weird. I'm not sure about this. The question is, is Jesus being glorified? And you go, well, how do I know if Jesus is being glorified? Because Jesus isn't necessarily just glorified because his name is spoken. Well, sometimes the only way we know if Jesus is being glorified is if he's being representative of actually who he is. Well, how do you know that? The Holy Spirit tells us. We've got to read it and compare it. It's like when we first started Church at the Well, and I, I, mean, I don't say this as often as I probably should. When we first started Church at the Well, I would tell the individuals that were coming, listen, you're not here to hear me. You're here to hear the Lord. And you have to discern what I'm saying as well and making sure that it's matching up to Scripture. It's, 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 you don't want my opinion. That's no good to you. I have plenty. I mean, I can give it to you. But it's probably just as grounded as your opinion. Opinions don't really matter to us when it comes to the Lord. What we want to know is who is God? And what is he trying to tell us? And what is he revealing to us? And we want to get to know the God that actually exists, not creating one that we want to exist. And the Holy Spirit is this amazing gift to all believers. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, when you're reading Scripture, 
as a Christ follower, what we have to be reminded is that this is the word, these are the words of the Holy Spirit, and those words are supposed to impact our hearts. That's why it says it's living, it's breathing. The word is, is always, it's always important to us. It's relevant to what we're going through. Because the Holy Spirit that lives in us is constantly pushing us to these passages of Scripture or, or this truth so that life change occurs and we know Jesus better. It's not just another book. It's not just, oh, these are really neat words of wisdom or, wow, this is really encouraging or, wow, this is really convicting. It goes beyond that. And if we don't grasp that, then we're gonna miss what the author of Hebrews is trying to push in every one of these areas. Because ultimately what he's saying is, this is the word of the Lord. Now, if you struggle with that, then I would encourage you to study it. And this is a, I'm gonna double dog, dog, double dog dare you guys here, right? Some of the greatest theologians that we have in history started with saying, I'm gonna disprove the Bible to be true. And if you really wanna do that and go after it, we're gonna go, go. Because we know exactly what's gonna happen because it happens every time. So when we look at this passage of scripture, what we're looking at, I mean every passage of scripture, we're looking at the Holy Spirit has written these words for us so that we can practically apply it to our life. And then the Holy Spirit that lives in us gives us the grace and the wisdom and the knowledge and the insight to be able to accomplish that which we feel convicted to do. And it all revolves around Him. It's one of the reasons why we're constantly saying this has really nothing to do with us and everything to do with Him. When you look at our salvation, it has nothing to do with us. It's Jesus did it all, and we just put our faith and trust in Him. That's why when, when we do something that's honoring to the Lord, we go, well, that's not me because I know me. That's the Holy Spirit that lives in me that's given me the grace to glorify Jesus, and it's coming from Him, for Him, right? And so... As we read these passages, I just want you to keep that frame in mind there because I, I don't know why he decided to throw that in before he says this. Other than he's going to be quoting an Old Testament passage here, Psalm 95. And he's basically, he's back in Psalm 95 and he's reading it and he's like, the Holy Spirit spoke then. And the Holy Spirit's putting on my heart to say these words to the individuals that I'm writing to, and it's going to go throughout history, so the Holy Spirit's put it on the author's mind to write these things to you and to me. Therefore, the Holy Spirit has something here that we're supposed to engage in in a very practical and meaningful way. So what does he say? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Okay. If you were to turn to, you don't have to turn there, but you can later. If you turn to Psalm 95, you would find that this is starting around the end of verse 7 in Psalm 95. This is basically, he's quoting a passage of scripture. And he's giving us some history and a warning and some insight. He says, listen, 
The Holy Spirit revealed back then these words. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So there's some questions that are generated for me. I'm like, okay, if this was recorded in Psalm 95 way back when, and it was talking about something that happened even in the past there, and it was relevant in the past, and it was relevant when David wrote this, and now it's being quoted again to the Hebrews, it's relevant then. Well, we need to understand what this rebellion was and what was going on here. So we're going to go through a little bit of quick history lesson. It may feel like this is disconnected, but what's interesting is last week we talked about Jesus being greater than Moses, and we talked about the importance of that, and all this is going to revolve around Moses' ministry. So we're going to learn a little history today. So what does this mean? All right, here we go. Let's dive in. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the day of the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to test and saw my works for 40 years. There's a couple of references here that we're talking about. First is we're going to look in Exodus, and it's all over. If you know the story of Moses, and we went over a little bit of it last week, like how he came where he came from, his kind of miraculous salvation, how the Lord used him to see uh, the Hebrews removed from slavery in Egypt. And then we kind of pick up the story from there. And you know like the, the movie version of this, right? The, the, we, <laughs> this moment when they're leaving and Pharaoh has finally said, go. And off they go and they get to the Red Sea and there's this crazy thing where, the, where God parts the Red Sea and the Hebrews walk across the Red Sea on dry land and then Pharaoh, I don't know what he was thinking, but he's like, let's go after them, right? I mean, I wouldn't go through that, but whatever. And he says, I'm gonna, we're going to go after them and then the Lord basically destroys the army by releasing whatever that looked like. Your, your movie version, okay? And so... I don't necessarily want to talk about that. I want to talk about what happens on the other side of this sea. You've got these individuals who have watched the Lord pull them from slavery through miraculous circumstances. An individual is born into slavery and then somehow miraculously brought up in the home of Pharaoh. Bizarre. And then defends his people and then leaves and comes back and he's kind of an older guy and he's got a stick that's pretty amazing and he does this crazy stuff, right? And he goes to Pharaoh and he's asking that Pharaoh let his people out. And Pharaoh, it says that the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart. It says no. And then we know the story of the plagues that come. If you don't know this story, you're going to read it. The plagues are going to come. It gets to a point where we get to the last, last plague where the firstborn male of all over is going to be killed and it happens and we have this amazing thing called the Passover where the blood of an animal is spread onto the doorposts and when the angel of death, whatever that means, comes through, they see this blood and they pass, literally pass over and everyone inside is safe. Obviously, that's pointing to Jesus, right? Because everything in the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. We get this beautiful picture that it's going to take blood to see lives saved. And then, as the Hebrews are watching all of this occur, they're, I'm assuming, praising God and elevating Moses and all of this stuff's happening and then you have this Red Sea crossing and they get over there and 
they get across the sea and all of a sudden things get hard. Like really hard. Egypt is a desert. It's a desert, right? So I'm from a place called Bakersfield, California. It's right, it's desert. Like the joke is if you turn off the sprinklers, everything would die. And it's accurate, right? It, it's, it's, if you were to go to, every time somebody says, oh, I know Bakersfield, I've been there. Usually I'm like, I'm so sorry. Like I love people there, but it is not a pretty place. It is a desert. It is hot, it's miserable, it's ugly, right? Des- and, and that's not hard desert. At least the city's been built there. Like, I've, I've tried to picture, ba- it's not hard because you can picture Bakersfield without things because it's still ugly, right? But Sorry, Bakersfield. So desert, I mean, it's sandy, it's, it's hot, it's desolate. There's not a lot of water. There's not a lot of food. There's not a lot of things living. And the things that do live typically in deserts want to kill you because they're trying to survive. It's not, I, I don't know many people, like if you came to me and said, I'm moving to the desert, I would do everything I could to talk you out of it, right? Because it's not a place that you just go, oh, I want to go to the desert. I don't understand people going to Palm Springs during the summer. It's 180 degrees and then people go golf and I'm like, I don't understand. The desert. They're going into the desert. They're, they're literally wandering into a desert. And I understand the issues. Like I want you to picture this. It's not like they're wandering into something easy but they've been released from something hard by the Lord in miraculous ways, and then they wander into the desert, and Moses begins to lead them. And it doesn't take long before they start doing what? Complaining. I mean, you can go to Exodus chapter 16, 17, and read some of these specific complaints. But basically, the, the first complaint they have is they says that they start to complain to Moses, and they're like, man, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, why did you even bring us out of Egypt? Did you just bring us to the desert to die? And then the complaint got so bad that they were like, we might as well be back in Egypt because bondage was better than this. At least we could eat. At least there was water. It describes in Exodus 17 that they're, they're talking about, well, there were pots of meat. At least we weren't going to die of starvation and thirst. So why did we even come out here, Moses? This is terrible. And Moses, being the leader that he is, often got sick of the complaining. Right? We have another story in Numbers the book of Numbers, I want to say it's chapter 14. I'll make sure that, yeah, chapter 14. Numbers chapter 14 where the people are complaining because there's no water. And the Lord's going to basically tell Moses to take his staff and strike a rock and water's going to come out of it, which it does, and so on and so forth. But the complaints are coming down to, sorry, that's Exodus 17. The complaints are going to come down to the Lord brought us out here to die of thirst. And we might as well be in bondage again. Same complaint. Year, m- month after month, the same complaining. The Lord sends manna, or what's called bread from heaven to them, right? And they're complaining about the manna. Now you're feeding us, but we don't like what you're feeding us. I've got allergies, I can't eat this stuff, whatever it is, right? Uh, whatever's happening, like the Lord's sending one thing for everybody to eat and they're all eating the same thing. And they're eating it for a long time and so they get tired of eating the same thing, I guess, and they start to complain. Well, why are we even out here again? 
There's a moment, there's a moment in, in Scripture where Moses ascends a mountain to bring the law down to the people, and when he gets back down, they've created a golden calf that they begin to honor and praise, saying, God's abandoned us. He's brought us out here in the desert to die, so let's just look at this golden calf and worship this thing. It's bizarre. We get to this... They've been wandering around a while. The whole point is he's trying to get them to this land that he's promised them, the promised land. And then we get to this, this passage in Numbers 14 where they're finally at the edge, the precipice of this promised land, and, and God says, I want you to send some spies in to take a look at what's going on here. And some spies go in, and two of them are Caleb and Joshua. They go in, they look, they come back, and the report is this land is amazing. It's filled with milk and honey which sounds cool. It's got everything that we need. It is beyond anything that we imagine. But the cities are big. The walls are large. The people are massive. The armies are enormous. And the spies come back, all but Joshua and Caleb. We'll put them aside over here for a second. The spies come back and they begin to complain to the people that the land that the Lord has promised them is going to take a lot of work to obtain and there's no way that they could possibly defeat the individuals that are there in the cities that they're seeing. And Caleb and Joshua are standing over here going, listen, if the Lord wants to give us this land, He will. He's trying to remind them of all the faithfulness. Like, He's brought you through the desert. He's fed you. He's given you water. He's, you've seen miraculous things happen. And you've, even in the midst of your complaining, He's still continued to provide in ways that you can't understand, in ways that can't be given to a human being. Miracles, we would call them, right? Like, a human being can't take credit for what's happening here. And now we've finally gotten to the precipice of getting out of the desert. We're finally in this moment. And you're telling me that you're not going to go in because it looks hard. It's scary. And Joshua and Caleb are saying, you need to remember what the Lord has done. And it says that the people refuse. With all of that in mind, we read this passage again, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. The punishment that God gave to the people of Israel as a res or the Hebrews as a result of their disobedience and their unwillingness to trust Him and refusal to enter into the land that He promised them was, all right, get back in the desert. And here's the thing that's crazy. He's going to send them back into the desert and they're going to wander for 40 years. And you're like, why 40 years? Well, it's a, 40 is a number of testing in Scripture. We know Jesus was tempted for 40 days. There's all kinds of 40, right? You, you can find them all in Scripture. But the interesting thing is the generation that refused to go in is going to completely die off all but two people. Caleb and Joshua. And basically what God's saying is, because of your disobedience, I'm going to let you wander in the desert for the rest of your life until you die there. And then when the next generation comes that wasn't the complainers, I'm going to let Joshua and Caleb lead them in. 
And when you think about this, in this history, it's intense. It's, a, it's an intense thing to think and, and process through. Um, I want to finish the passage here and then keep going, but because there's some other interesting things here. It says in verse 10, Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. There's an emotional component to this that, that strikes me. You have these individuals that have watched the Lord do miraculous things. They've watched Him do things that we make movies about. And it requires CGI. They watched Him do things that the forgiveness that comes in listening to the complaining. I mean, God remains somewhat patient to the point of I'm just going to keep caring for these people. I love them. I care for them. But there comes a point when he says, this is what I've promised you. I've given you enough to trust me. You've seen enough. I don't need to show you anymore. You've seen enough. The problem is your hearts are hard. The problem is no matter how much I show you of who I am and what I'm capable of and how much I love you, no matter how much I provide for you, no matter what I do for you, the fact that your hearts are hard, you're never going to get it. It's not that I haven't shown you enough. It's not that I haven't declared myself enough. It's not that I haven't made it very clear who I am. It's that your hearts are so hardened. You're so selfish and so wrapped up in what you want when you want it. You don't want to go through hard things. You want everything handed to you. You've forgotten that all of this is the result of your sin to begin with. And therefore, I'm going to give you what you want. I'm not going to let you in. And then he phrases this in a way that and when I was studying this all week, I've been crying. As I swore in my wrath, thou shalt not enter my rest. As human beings, the one thing that we long for is rest. And I'm not talking about good sleep. Like, that's a beautiful thing. Slept great last night. I was so happy. You know those moments when you wake up and you hear the alarm, and you're like, what day is it? <laughs> what do I have to do today? What's my name? <laughs> like, that was me last night. It was great. I don't know why, but it was, I slept good. But that's not the rest I'm talking about. It, the rest of the Lord is a peace. It's a calm. It's an understanding that God is who He says He is and that He's in control of all things and that no matter what circumstance you find yourself in, you have Him. Anxiety is typically produced because we... Well, it's typically produced because something isn't happening that we want to happen. Like it's a circumstantial thing. Or... Life gets so hard that you just get to this point where you go, if there's just one more thing, I'm going to lose it. We've all been there. I mean, I've had those moments where I'm like, Lord, okay, what's next? Like, really? 
And he usually shows me something that's next, right? Because I'm complaining. <laughs> He's like, you're going to complain? Flat tire. Here you go. How about that one? <laughs> the idea, I mean, picture a life with no anxiety. I'm not saying picture a life with no problems. I'm saying picture a life with no anxiety. Picture a life where no matter what circumstance you're going through, you have this ability to stay at peace, rest. This is what these individuals were denied. When they were going into the promised land, the issue was they were gonna have to go to war. They were gonna have to do some things to get it. I mean, I don't know what it was gonna look like before, punishment may have been a little easier maybe i don't know we're never gonna know but coming back they had to fight for it we know that it's crazy stories right life's hard imagine if you had the rest of god As I was reading through this passage, I mean, it's, it's not complicated. We look at a story of Old Testament and these people, and if you spend much time in the Word, this is where you're going to conclude with. You're going to look at Israel and you're going to go, what? What? Like, well, how can you see so many amazing things and keep turning your back? The book of Judges is one of the most frustrating books that you'll ever read. Because it's, it's this constant cycle. It's God blesses, the people turn against God, they get really sinful, the Lord raises somebody up to bring them back to him, they repent, and we move on. But every time, if you read the book of Judges, this cycle happens, it gets worse and worse and worse, and the sin of the people get worse and worse and worse, and the, what the Lord does to bring them back, it's more extravagant and more extravagant until you read the end of the book of Judges and you're listening to some stories that are going on and you're like, wow, the, the generation is just lost. You, you read stories of like what happened during the time of Moses and you're like, if I saw the Red Sea parted and I walked through on dry land and then I turned around and watched all of my enemies drown, I would never forget that. I would always remember that. I would always like trust the Lord because look what he did for me. If I was starving and the Lord threw manna from heaven, yeah, I may not want to eat the same thing all the time, but I would, I would remember that he provided for me when there was no food. If I was in the desert and I watched somebody hit a rock with a stick and water came out from the Lord, I will remember that. I will always remember that. That will, that will guide the rest of my life. And we think that way. And so then we look at the stories and we're like, what are you doing? How are you missing it? How is it possible that after all of this, you get to a place where you literally say, I don't want your rest. I don't want what you've promised. I don't think you have my good at heart. I don't know that I can trust you. I don't know that I'm confident that you care about my well-being. Because isn't that basically what's being said? Lord, I'm looking at the circumstances and they're way bigger than you. There's no way you can handle this. And then we fall into this pattern, right? For me. God, if you're not going to do it, I'm going to. 
And as I've been processing through this, I'm like, at what point, at what point did the author of Hebrews writing to these, these individuals who are scattered all over the world at this point and trying to help them understand who Jesus is and using their own history and their own culture to show them the importance of Christ, did he go, wow, I'm looking at the generation that I'm living in and this is the story I need to express. I need to remind them of what happens when you stop trusting the Lord and you start doing your own thing. Or at the beginning of the passage, when your heart begins to get hardened because of the circumstances of the desert. This happens during Moses' time. It was written in the Psalms during David's time. It's written in the book of Hebrews during New Testament time. And now, in this one, it's been written down by the Holy Spirit for us to read. And this becomes the, the heart of everything. The, the whole reason we went through this whole, this whole history lesson is to say, why would the author of Hebrews scratch that? Why would the Holy Spirit be reminding of this story today. And it's not, it's not a far leap, is it? It's been a hard week. We watched 18 people get slaughtered in Maine this week. From what I understand, a, a guy walks into a bowling alley on a youth night and open fires with an automatic weapon or semi-automatic, whatever it is. I'm not a gun guy. We have 13 injured. We got a manhunt. The state's basically shut down. We're looking at the ramifications of, of sin-cursed world. You look at things like that often and you go, what do you do with this? How do we get to this point? Why does it keep happening? My niece was in a car accident this week. Her car, she was in a passenger of a car. She had her hand out the window. The car rolled. It crushed her hand. And so I get a call on 1 a.m. Uh, it basically says she has no hand. They're trying to figure out if they're going to amputate. She's 14. And I'm going, okay, Lord, like, that's heavy. What's next? I got calls from some pastor friends who were struggling this week, discouraged. Some of them choosing to leave the ministry as a result of just pain and pressure. Others uh, falling into habitual sin that they can't seem to let go of. Yesterday, our neighbor who was on one side of us, and we were out working in the yard a little bit, and he comes and he says, my, my, my dad died today. So he's in the house and waiting for the, the people to come pick him up, and I'm just, it's a week. It's a week. We have these. We have these weeks. 
Every week, just about, that you come here, and if you're new, you're going to hear this about every week, I remind you that we live in a sin-cursed world and in sin-cursed bodies. And I want to I put some traction on this for you because I don't want it just to be something that we say. How does this passage of Scripture apply to us? We currently live in the desert. We live in the desert. We live in a world that's not supposed to be. We, we live in this, and for lack of a better word, another intertestamental period where the covenant of Jesus has come into play and we know who Jesus is and the Holy Spirit lives in his people and the church is being built. But we have this promise of Jesus coming back and restoring all things, meaning what? The promised land. And in the midst of this time period where we have what we need to experience the rest of God and Jesus returning, we live in a world that is broken and difficult and a mess and where Jesus literally promises that you're going to hurt and suffer and go through hardship and trial. It's not a, well, maybe it'll happen. It's, a, it's going to happen. We live in the desert. You're like, man, this is so encouraging, right? The reality is that's the reality. We live in a desert. I didn't even mention the war. There's, there's always pain. There's always death around this. There's always suffering. That when we get to that place where I'm like, God, what next? He's like, it's always going to happen as long as you're alive. There's always going to be hurt. There's always going to be the next thing. If you've ever owned a home, you know this. <laughs> right? It never ends. It's just, it's just the next thing. It's always. So we have some options. I, I think one of the reasons that the author of Hebrews brings this up is because for some reason... The church here, the, the Hebrews here, have forgotten that we live in a desert. They've forgotten to look back and say that everything that was done in the Old Testament was to prepare us for what was to come in the future, pointing us to Jesus. The world hasn't changed. It's still a mess. And it's going to be a mess till Jesus comes back. So what do we do? The way I see it, we have two options. This passage of Scripture describes that there's a life that can be lived in the rest of God, and there's a life that can be lived in the anxiousness of the world. And what's fascinating to me is when the anxiousness of the world is chosen, you can live the rest of your life there without experiencing any peace. That's shown to us in the story of individuals who died in the desert. The purpose of the church is to represent a life in a sin-cursed world with people living in the desert to represent a life that shows rest. 
that shows the hope that we have in an eternal God and the peace that we have in Jesus overcomes all earthly circumstance. It overcomes relationship issues. It overcomes the evil that we see, like things that went on in Maine this week. It overcomes the war that's going on in Israel. It overcomes the pain that I feel watching my niece suffer. It overcomes the the hurt that can be caused in a church or the sin that can be lived out by anyone. The desert's not going away. But the message of Jesus is that we can find rest in the midst of it. And that's what the author of Hebrews is really pushing here. When he is explaining that he's greater than angels and he's explaining that he's greater than Moses, what he's saying ultimately up to this point is you won't find rest in any of those things. You're going to find confusion and turmoil. You're going to find that the circumstances of the world will overwhelm you to a point where it's not only that you don't have rest, but it can ultimately destroy you. That the desert can be so harsh and so brutal and so hot and everything around you is trying to kill you. You following the analogy? That you can be eaten up. But Jesus is better. This is why the Gospel is so important. It's why... It's why it can't be watered down. It's why it can't be ignored. It's why it can't just be, oh, this is an option for you to choose to try to have some you know, understanding in your life. It's beyond that. It's the only thing in this world that will provide you rest. The only thing. It's not going to come from circumstances that you create. It's not going to come from a war ending. It's not going to come that we found the guy on the manhunt. He's already dead. It's not going to come by revenge. It's not going to come by complaining. It's, it comes when we literally every moment, every minute, every day choose to trust Jesus. I wonder what would happen in the church if we stopped trying to use Jesus to change circumstance and started using Jesus to change our hearts. If we go back to the beginning, remember what he says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. When your heart gets hardened to the gospel, you're in trouble. When you allow the circumstances of the desert to overshadow the freedom, the love, the grace, the joy of Jesus, you've lost. 
because the circumstances aren't going to change. I, I told you I get to this point sometimes where I'm like, God, if you're not going to, I will. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. I think one of the things that we have to come to grips with is that as scripture says, this world isn't our home. It's not gonna get fixed without Jesus. It's a mess. But we don't have to be. Part of what Jesus came to do was to show us what it looked like to have rest in the midst of the desert. When you look at the temptations of Jesus recorded in scripture, it talks about that when Jesus was met with the temptation in the literal desert, what did he come back to? The truths of scripture. He quoted a scripture every time. Why? Jesus had the power to change the circumstances. Jesus had the power to get out of the desert. Jesus had the power to eliminate all of his suffering. Why didn't he? Because Jesus, one of the things that Jesus came and showed us is what it looks like to live in the rest of God in the midst of the pain and trial and suffering and desert of this world. Jesus was never anxious. He didn't, he never said, God, if you won't, I will. It says that he walked humbly before the Lord, obediently before the Lord, that he was filled with the joy of the Lord. That even in the midst of his most difficult trial being on the cross, he was still thinking about the peace of God. You can't say, forgive them, they know what they, they do if you're not at peace with what's happening. It's not a complex message. There's some self-evaluation that has to take place. Are you using God as an attempt to change your circumstances in a world that he's not gonna change till he returns? Is that your focus? Because if it is, you have the same end as this. They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, thou shalt not enter my rest. You can't produce your own rest. When you think about your week and you looked at the circumstances of a difficult week, and I don't know how your, maybe your week was better than mine. Did you acknowledge Jesus? Did you find rest in him? Was your mood dictated by your circumstances? Was your hope dictated by your circumstances? What does your prayer life look like? Was that dictated by your circumstances? Was your goal 
this week to know Jesus better or to use Him for what you want? Here's a good one. How much complaining went on this week? The grumbling to the Lord. Lord, clearly you do not see what's going on in the world. Clearly you do not see what's happening in my life. I can complain just like everybody else, but what I've learned over time is that complaining does not produce rest and it declares a lack of trust in the Lord. So what's the answer? Here's the thing. I said this to my, my family as they're there. Lacey's in, in San Diego. She was there visiting our niece and I said, listen, I don't know what the answer is gonna be. It's possible my niece could lose her hand. It's possible it could get saved. I have no idea. But what I do know is this. There's always hope in Jesus. That's what we need. We need to be reminded that no matter what circumstance we find ourselves in, no matter what we see, this mess of this world, that there's always hope in Jesus. And hope produces joy. And joy becomes contagious. We have hope. You're not going to be removed from the desert. Well, someday you will be. But as long as you're alive here, as long as Jesus tarries, we're not going to be removed from the desert. This world is not your hope. Jesus is. Here's the thing. If you're here today and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus and you're like, the world is hopeless, I agree with you. <laughs> You've been trying to find hope in everything, but what will actually give it to you? And it doesn't work. And you can continue to try. And you're going to get the same result. Just like Scripture says. The Lord can get you to the precipice of a promised land and you can refuse it. Sorry, I'm still not sure. <laughs> Siri even gets that one. Like... The only hope that you have is putting your faith and trust in Jesus, knowing that there's a promised land coming and knowing that you can actually experience purpose and joy and peace and rest in the midst of the desert. It's why you need to know Jesus. If you're here and that's, you've never done that, you can do that. I'm just gonna encourage you, like turn to the person next to you and say, do you know Jesus? And they say, yes, say, just talk. I need some rest. You can come talk to me if you like. This, this book was written to people who were supposed to believe. Isn't that interesting? Because you think, oh, this sounds like it would be written to people who don't. It's written to those who are supposed to. And this is the story that the Holy Spirit chose to tell them. What does that tell us? It tells us that even the church has the ability to allow the desert to overshadow the hope we have in Christ if we allow our hearts to get hard. And we see with the result when it happens. So how's your heart? 
church. Is it hard? Have the circumstances hardened it? Has the desert hardened it? Is your disappointment? I see people say all the time, I'm so disappointed in God. And I'm like, man, the fact that we even get to say that without lightning striking us is amazing. (laughs) But why do I even say that? All it means is I don't understand Him. It may mean I don't trust Him. We, as the church, claim to have the ultimate truth in the midst of the desert, and then what I'm finding, especially with things like this week, is that the church ends up destroying itself because of the circumstances of the desert and a hardened heart instead of focusing on Christ Himself. You have every tool that you need to survive the desert and thrive in it. If you know Jesus. You have this, written by the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit living in you that illuminates it for you. As a reminder of things like today to say, remember what happens with the hardened heart. And don't let that happen to you. You've been freed from sin. Don't let sin overwhelm you. You've been freed from sin. Don't let a sin-cursed world dictate how you move and think and function. Keep your eyes on the freedom of the Gospel. Keep your eyes focused strongly on Jesus. Read His Word and allow the Holy Spirit to encourage you and be a light in a dark world. You pick the analogy. It's all over the Scriptures. So many things talking about us being light in darkness. Joy in difficulty. Water in the desert. It all comes back to this. We are a privileged people to know Christ. Why? would we choose anything that the desert has to offer? Why would we allow the desert to impact how we function and think? We're free of that. Imagine a church. I don't know. Church in Boston. Little church. Like this one in East Boston. Imagine a little church like this one whose individuals who came said, I refuse to let the hardness of the desert harden my heart to hearing the truth of the gospel and applying it accurately. Imagine a church that says, I refuse to let the hardness of the desert to harden my heart that I don't experience the joy that I've been given as a gift every single day. Imagine a church that says, I refuse to allow the desert to dictate how I think and how I function, but instead, I will allow Jesus to do that. Imagine a church that isn't rattled by circumstance, but grounded in the foundation of Jesus. And then imagine a church 
that declares that truth and joy and love of the gospel to those who are around it, not just in word, but in action, what would happen? You'd get to see more people come into freedom. But more importantly, your heart would never get hard. Don't harden your heart. We know the desert's here. We know it's not going away. Come Lord Jesus quickly. But in the midst, we have everything we need to thrive. But it's got to be in Christ. We're going to take communion. We take communion every week as a reminder of what Jesus has done to allow us the things that we need to survive in the desert. (laughs) They say the smartest civilizations in the world are the ones that learn from the previous civilizations. Isn't it fascinating? that we're constantly reminded of the mistakes that were made in the past when we don't apply Christ. Now we're looking at something that's taking place in the past that has immediate impact of our present and future. Um, Communion is taken differently by everyone. Sometimes it's filled with joy. Sometimes it's filled with repentance. Sometimes it's filled with sorrow. But the reality is that it always focuses us on what Jesus did and our privilege in it. That if there's going to be any change or lack of hardness of heart, it's because of the actions of Christ and the fact that He lives. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, I'm going to encourage you not to partake. I don't want you leaving here with a false hope because you think you did something religious. Taking some juice and some bread doesn't change your circumstances in the desert unless you understand who Jesus is. Um, The girls are going to come up. We're going to sing a couple of songs. And I don't know what the Holy Spirit's doing in here. I just will end with this. Today, if you hear His voice, Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your reminder. Lord, in what was a difficult week for me personally, I don't know what everybody else's week was like, but I'm grateful for the reminder of these passages. The reminder that the circumstances of this desert world that we live in can overwhelm us and cause our hearts to get hardened toward you. Lord, you are good and holy and wonderful. You constantly show us your goodness and we forget. We allow the circumstances that we see in a sin-cursed world to overshadow your goodness at times even though it's not true. Lord, I pray specifically for anyone in this room right now who has never put their faith and trust in Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would free them from this desert. You would free them from the desert of sin, their sin-cursed bodies. You'd free them from the desert and the perspective of the desert that that's all that exists. 
Lord, and I pray that you would give them faith, that you would remove the, the heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Lord, give them the boldness and the courage to ask questions and seek after you. Put their faith and trust in you, Lord. I beg you that no one would leave here today without knowing your hope and your love and your grace and your salvation. And Lord, I pray for your church where we have the answer. It's just sometimes we're not living it. And it's hard to declare what we don't live. So Father, I ask that you would convict us where we need to be convicted in this, that, that you would overshadow the circumstances of the desert and the circumstances of our own hardened hearts. So Lord, would you, in the power of your Holy Spirit, soften our hearts to you? Would you bring us fresh wind, Lord, to see the truth? to find the joy and to thrive in the desert that we're in. All for the glory of Jesus and nothing more. We love you, Lord. And we love you because you first loved us. Father, remind us of that. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.